Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where we ask the question, if you're willing to beat your boyfriend in a tennis match, can it really be true love? Book number three, Playing with Fire. Can Jessica play Bruce Patman's game and win? I'm Marissa Flaxbart, and with me today is my dear friend, Caitlin McCann. Hello! I was so excited to have Caitlin uh, on the podcast with me and reading one of these Sweet Valley High books. Uh, Caitlin, you want to talk a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're doing? Sure. Um, So, yes, my name is, in fact, Caitlin McCann. Uh, I am currently a UCLA PhD student in the field of cinema and media studies, and I know Marissa from our time together at Chapman, uh, which I don't know if she's talked about yet on this podcast, but we... I haven't. We were... Oh, perfect. Then we were, you know, comrades in, in film studies arms in a way. Like, we, she was getting her degree in screenwriting. I was doing the uh, academic track, but... This which is, I did as an undergrad which, film yeah. studies. So we've had lots of great conversations, and I'm sure this one will be no different. I certainly hope so. I feel like there's a lot to talk about with this. And a Sweet Valley High novel is kind of like, you know, a s- cinematic experience. And as the cover of my edition says, that it is now a hit TV series. So at some point, this was on <laughs> television, which still puts it well into our realm. Although, it sure was. It sure was. It was did, you, the, did you watch it? Did I watch the TV show? Yeah. No, but I remember it existing. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners <laughs> were obsessed with the TV show and are upset with me for not having been a watcher of the TV show. But I have very clear images of it in my head. Well, let's start out. Before okay. we get into the book... Playing with Fire, mm-hmm. book number three. Um, let's talk about uh, just your history with Sweet Valley High. Okay. Um, had you ever heard of a Sweet Valley High novel before I asked you to read this book? Uh, in passing, yes. Like my personal middle grade or young middle grade reading uh, was more like the Babysitter's Club or the Boxcar Children. I never really read... Sweet Valley High. So I came into this novel like fresh, fresh as Very new snow. Very fresh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I think a fresh perspective is something that is very valuable to bring to this uh, very uh, strange and special uh, series. Before we get into the plot of Playing with Fire, um, let's talk a little bit about the cover of Playing with Fire. Describing it. All right. There is a brunette male with a piercing stare. He is wearing a peach button-down and what appears to be a sweater draped casually over his shoulders. Kind of a camel hair sort of a sweater. Yes, I imagine it's very expensive. Uh, And then there's a all-American blonde in the in the full 80s sense of the all-American blonde. All-American, I believe, is a phrase used to describe Jessica Wakefield, the girl in question, in Perfect. this book. It is an, it's a phrase, all-American, that <laughs> stands out when describing a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl <laughs> uh, as a little problematic. Why exactly is that all-American? But, you know, this was, what, 1984? Um, the man in question is, of course, Bruce Patman, mm-hmm. um, the richest heir of Sweet Valley, California. What is also very significant is that Bruce has his uh, forearm and hand like kind of clutched around Jessica's neck and she is clasping onto his arm in kind of a 
I don't know. Maybe it's because I've now read it, but I I had three like chain linked thoughts like as I examined the cover for the first time. And I I honestly didn't know you were going to ask me this question, but I had thoughts about it anyway. You had thoughts, chain linked thoughts. <laughs> yes, I have to tell the <laughs> listeners at this point that Caitlin is certainly at this point the most prepared guest I've had on the show, <laughs> and I have a feeling is the most prepared guest that. Like, this record will not be beaten because she has brought with her, in addition to a heavily um, noted copy of Sweet Valley High, number three, Playing With Fire, with uh, color-coded, I believe you said, mm-hmm. um, cat paper stickers, <laughs> yeah. flags marking the different pages, different different points. Um, also, um, a small yellow mini legal pad full mm-hmm. of notes. So um bringing your academic prowess to this project i um as just as i expected and i'm delighted i'm delighted this yeah. is exactly the treatment that i think um sweet valley high deserves richly and i'm glad that we can uh, we can do that and i'm glad to provide it i also think that tells you as listeners everything you need to know about me that i have color coordinated cat post-its for something <laughs> so true good point uh, but my first impressions on the cover was that the guy, who I now know is Bruce Patman, uh, kind of looks like a young David Hasselhoff. And, mm. you know, kind of like the the smolder that young Hasselhoff tried to perfect. And I noticed, again, the Now a TV series. And it made me think, is this what The Hills would be like if it were in the 80s? Oh, maybe so. But you started to allude to something that I think is very telling about this book. And uh, we'll get into the plot in a moment, which is that... Bruce just almost has Jessica in like a like a chokehold, mm-hmm. like a rest, like a wrestling move. Like he's <laughs> he's doing the full Nelson or half yeah. Nelson on her. I don't know wrestling moves, but some kind of a Nelson he's doing on poor uh, Jessica. But she's got a, a wry smile on her face and is caressing his bicep, which I'm sure she's really hot for. So legitimately, even before. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm laughing over legitimately. Hot for. Um, but I have my third and final note was that her eyes are speaking to me like she's trapped. Is this a novel about teenage <laughs> Stockholm syndrome? And in a way it is. And in a way it is. It turned out to be a very accurate reading of the cover. Well, this is actually an interesting book. I was thinking as I was rereading number three to bring a new reader to Sweet Valley in on. Because throughout the book, Elizabeth alludes to the idea that Jessica is not being herself. Mm-hmm. But the only Jessica you see for the bulk of the book is that you see, having not known what Jessica is usually like, mm-hmm. is this um, the submissive Jessica that we meet in this book. And it's not until the end that you really get a taste of the real Jessica. So I... On page, uh, I have all my notes, by the way, have page numbers on them because I'm that person. Oh, yeah. No, I do that. I do that. (laughs) But on page 107, I have a note that says, Jessica is a grade A bitch. Oh, so you are getting a taste of the real Jessica. Jessica. I feel like there are enough context clues for somebody who even is a novice to this world. Uh, You know, in the intro chapter, we talk about, Liz talks about the trouble that Jessica gave Liz and Todd in the beginning of their relationship. Oh, sure. So things like that, or how she treats Robin, which I totally want to get into because that's well, a huge issue. Great. Let's start let's start at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Uh, at the very outset of the book, I'll set it up. We have Jessica having just had her greatest social triumph. She <laughs> has one fall queen and is now quick on the heels of that uh, queendom, now already at some kind of Sweet Valley High dance contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winston, who won fall king, is her date, but she is not interested 
in really being on a date with him. Sad for Winston because he's had a crush on her since fifth grade, Mm -hmm. but everybody knows that's not going anywhere. (laughs) Jessica is looking to capitalize on her longtime crush on very hunky Bruce Patman. He's a little older, I guess. He's, I guess, a senior. I always thought that Bruce Patman was a junior like everybody else, but he turns 18 in this book, so I (laughs) guess he's... Maybe he's just dumb. Oh, that's probably true. Yeah. (laughs) So there are at the dance... And uh, Jessica is dancing with Winston, Mm -hmm. and Bruce Patman uh, swoops in, uh, takes his cues from eye contact from Jessica, Mm -hmm. and knows that she just really wants him to come over, which is what she wants. And and they win the dance contest together, which kind of begins their uh, journey to to coupledom. Um, Elizabeth is angry at Jessica because uh, she came to the dance with Winston. Don't you understand? They're on a date with him. But... I feel like that's kind of misplaced uh, on Elizabeth's part. Like, Jessica is never going to really go on a date with Winston. Yeah. Which is made pretty clear, I think. And uh, I I think that moment honestly speaks more to who the book wants us to know Liz is or Elizabeth is as a person because she's got this very strong sense of right and wrong. And Mm. so for her, it's just – well, you went to the dance with him, you should leave with him. <laughs> and their mom later repeats that same sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess right after they leave the dance, Jess and Bruce leave together. Everybody goes to a party at Ken Matthews' house okay. or something. It's Ken's party, but it's at the lake. Yeah, there's a lake. There's a lake house and foliage, lots of foliage. Yeah. <laughs> now, another thing that will be news to you as a new reader of this book is that this book gets much more explicit, I will have to say, much more quickly than even far later books in the Sweet Valley series. I'm on page 13 of this book, and I'm already saying ew out loud at (laughs) things that characters are saying to each other. I did write ew in a couple of places. I don't think on page 13, but it, um, and in particular, the phrases that I have highlighted is, she'd have to be less aggressive if she wanted to keep him interested. Oh my gosh, Caitlin, that's literally the thing I said to you about. It's yes. on page 13. It says, I took a picture of it. It says, <laughs> it, it, they're dancing together. So I'm actually jumping the gun about the, the lewdness. We'll get to that in a second. But okay, uh, they're dancing together. Bruce says, in dancing at least, the guy still takes the lead. And then she says, his meaning wasn't lost on Jessica. She'd have to be less aggressive if she wanted to keep him interested. And she says... Then I'll follow wherever you lead, she said with uncharacteristic submissiveness. Bruce nudged closer and rubbed his hand approvingly over the nape of her neck. So it's already, yeah, it's already <laughs> getting a little sexy for these books, a little okay. sexy. I mean, in book one, we get glimpses of, uh, like, descriptions of, like, gleaming bronze chests and stuff, but it's still, oh it's shy, yeah, it shies away from that kind of romantic language. But in this book, right away... They're on their way to this beach house, and and uh, Bruce is, like, making moves on her. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe we can get back to this at a different point, but I had a note at one point, because, like, as their relationship progresses, they're, they're constantly going to the beach. And I kind of started to wonder if the beach was not, like, a Hitchcockian version of, of sex. Like, every time they mentioned going to the beach... Does that mean that they're having sex? Because that's definitely implied later on in the book by somebody like Todd, who's like, I'm starting to hear some things about your sister. Yeah. Well, let's get back to that as the book progresses. So um, at the party, one thing that 
really jumped out at me is hearing Bruce Patman talk to the other dudes. Mm. And you remember what he's talking about? He's telling them a story about being pulled over by a police officer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's like going 82 and a 50. And this story is just dripping with this like rich white male privilege. Yes. Do you know who my dad is? Like, oh, it's just too bad that, uh, that I was going 80 and a 50, and then I slipped him a 20, and you know what? He took it. He took it, and he, he called me mister. You know, he gave me respect. And I, I that was one of my notes is, oh, look, white privilege in action. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> It couldn't be clearer. So you get a picture of who this guy is, and the author wants to make it clear to us, it seems, if we don't already hate this guy, we are supposed to hate this guy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. They They really don't try to make him seem like a good guy. Although Jessica, we do know that Jessica is clearly like really feeling like she's genuinely in love with him. Yeah. And then on the next page, right across from that, there is a long passage on 23 where Jessica sees him in the moonlight and sees his body for the first time. And she says that she feels like stirrings. Stirrings. And, and to me, and she, she assumes, uh, we hear her internal thoughts and she assumes that this is, this must be the beginning of love. And I think that's such a crucial conversation point for teenagers is this difference between love and lust, because what she's feeling is like presumably the beginning of her sexuality. And I think the, the, the stirring is even described as like being in her belly. Like it's the same mm-hmm. kind of language that you would use to describe like a, like a very lustful pang. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a huge uh, underlying, if not overlying theme of, of number three of playing with fire is this idea of, learning the difference between lust and love. Because, I mean, I remember from my teenage years, that was a very hard lesson to learn. And it it took me a couple of tries before I figured out that that lesson needed to be learned. Yeah. Uh, which is completely valid for a book that's dealing with high school students. Yeah. Um, well, this is just making me think that part of me feels like, oh, well, Jessica should have learned this lesson already because we're constantly hearing Jessica described as just always kind of getting whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. But then one interesting thing about this is that Jessica apparently has had this crush for a long time and maybe uh, she's always had this this lust for Bruce that it's just con- the fact that it's been a long-standing lust and that he has withheld his affection from her yeah. and the one thing that she can't she the one guy she can't seem to secure mm-hmm. uh is is also an, a second thing that's fueling her intense desire for him and you know what for as much as we learn over and over again about Jessica kind of playing the field with guys she's never going as far with almost any of them as she goes through in this book. Well, I think that that comes across even as somebody who hasn't read the series, because another thing that struck me even early on in in chapter one, when she talks about how long she's had this crush on Bruce, she says, sorry to interrupt you, but I made a note because she claims in chapter one that she's been waiting for Bruce, quote, since birth. Yeah, since birth, which is a pretty big statement. And I, I tried to, because I had such issues with some of Jessica's behavior. I tried to really be sympathetic to her whenever possible, because I think part of this, you know, motif, if you want to call it that, is like the peril of crushes when you're a young girl or a young woman. And um, especially people that have been at a distance from you 
for the most of your life, but you, you just feel that longing for them or that want for them, especially poignant in high school. Cause I can remember being like a freshman or a sophomore and just having feelings sure. for an upperclassman and feeling oh, like sure. they were so unrequited. And in this situation, you kind of get to see what happens when you get that long distance crush, you know, like, and that reality might not be as great as you imagined it. Yeah, and it's not a very Jessica quality. So no wonder once she gets that longing answered, she's not acting in a very Jessica way. But we're still stuck in chapter two. So they're at the lake. <laughs> this is what always happens. Yeah, They are at the lake and it's Ken's party. Apparently Ken's has great parties. Everyone's there. Mm-hmm. And the craziest thing happens for these books, which I just always think of as being so tame and having read so many of them as an adult, even mm-hmm. I still was surprised because in chapter two, I believe it is the word breasts appears <laughs> in this chapter. So Bruce is like swimming with Jess in the lake. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what happens? Yeah. He unties her bikini top and then she tries to like, she has an internal thought of just like, oh, I need to retake control of the situation. Yeah, he's already kissed her, and it's a very passionate kiss. It's a lingering kiss unlike any she'd ever experienced before. And, yeah, he it says Jessica had no idea what he was doing until she felt the cool water swirl under her bikini top and hit her breasts. That's some salacious language right there, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For these books, it really is. It's hot. It's hot. I Except mean, also scary. Yeah. No, And but it, it, I tried again to put myself in, in her, you know, I started to say shoes, but at this point, I guess she's barefoot. I tried to put myself in Jessica's position. And, you know, me at 16, 17 definitely would have let something like that slide or like tried to trying move to learn it. the rules of what, yeah. the, oh, this is what adults do. And in fact, Bruce is encouraging her in that direction. Just a few paragraphs later, Bruce smiled shyly. What's the matter, Jess? Don't you like to play big girl games or are you just a tease? I mean, he's pressing all the buttons. Like, mm-hmm. this is what you signed up for. If you like me, this is what got girls who are like with me and who like me do. And this is yeah. what I do with girls I like. And you're not, the implication is also like, maybe you're not woman enough for me. Oh, sure. And sure. and that that itself is like, I think sometimes the biggest button when you're on this weird precipice between being a teenager and being an adult, because you want to be a woman so badly. Right. So taking a pause from Jess and Bruce for a moment, another element that comes up early on in this um, story that will become important later is that. There is the rock group, the Droids, mm-hmm. Sweet Valley High's favorite rock group. Best name for a rock group. I'm so I'm already on board. It is pretty cool. The Droids, uh, it's very timely, very very appropriate, and still mm-hmm. to this day, the Droids is a kick-ass band name. And the Droids are possibly getting a manager, getting a mm-hmm. chance to uh, to play in different clubs. And Elizabeth is excited about this. She has this funny line where she tells one of the members of the droids that she'd like to chart their progress in a running series of stories for the Oracle, mm-hmm. which I just love how serious this newspaper is that there's a running series of stories. She's a serious journalist. She is. She is. So um, that's something that is keeping Emily Meyer, the drummer for the droids mm-hmm. really busy. Emily sits next to Jessica in chemistry class. And this is all how this ties into Jess and Bruce, Mm -hmm. because Bruce wants to spend more and more time with Jessica. Jessica kind of needs to study for the chemistry test if she's going to pass it. But Bruce is like, baby, you don't need chemistry. 
all you need is the chemistry between us. Yeah, can't you study this some more? It's kind of the implication. I don't think he actually says that, but that's definitely very close to yeah. what he would say. <laughs> so Jessica's like, you're right. I always get away some with it somehow. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm going to do this time? I sit right next to Emily. She always passes and she has big handwriting. So I'm going to cheat off of her. Lo and behold, Emily fails the chem test because she's not studying. She's busy practicing for all these stupid gigs that the droids have, mm-hmm. which end up being pretty lame. Yeah. So Jessica fails the test too. She complains to Bruce about this. And Bruce... Um, in addition to just being a terrible influence and a bad guy, is also full of great ideas for how to cheat on chemistry tests. Yeah. No, and this whole subplot uh, that feeds back into the main plot, it's amazing to see how many people Jessica loops into this. It gets really intricate. It it gets really intricate because it's not just Emily, because she basically blackmails Emily into cheating, but in order to successfully blackmail Emily into cheating, she loops in Robin. So let's talk about Robin for a second. Robin Wilson. Yes, please, because I have a lot of feelings about Robin. Robin Wilson is kind of a B-story element here. She doesn't really have anything to do with Bruce and Jessica, but she is constantly... Uh, just wanting to be friends with Jessica. And Mm -hmm. Jessica is sort of allowing this. Robin Wilson is a fat girl. And that's Mm -hmm. like, being a fat girl and being like annoyingly clingy to Jessica are basically her two personality traits at this point. Now, Robin has more story that is coming her way soon. Yeah, good is is questionable, oh. but but oh, no, good. No, it's things work out okay for Robin. I'm not sure in the grand scheme of things, it's a great was a great lesson for for girls to get. But listeners, you know, hold tight for the next episode to hear about the saga of Robin Wilson. You'll have to I'll have to lend you book four. Yeah, so you can I'm find gonna, out I'm gonna have to tune in because I'm already. I feel like the people I'm the most emotionally invested in are Winston and Robin. <laughs> well, so let's talk about Winston and Robin. We talked yeah. about Winston a little bit. Robin is following Jessica around Mm -hmm. and Jessica uh, is kind of allowing it, but only as much as she can kind of use Robin. Right. Like she asks Robin to cook dinner for her basically Mm -hmm. and pretends that like Robin's going to teach her how to cook dinner because she wants to cook for Bruce, but really is scheming from the very beginning to just basically have Robin cook dinner on the night that Jessica's supposed to cook dinner for the family and not even show up until dinner time. Right. Which or, is such a weird lie, but okay. Or when she forces Robin to babysit Mr. Collins' kid. Yeah, she's supposed to. Jessica's supposed to babysit for, for Mr. Collins, but yeah. she knows that Bruce might call while she's there. She's waiting for Bruce's call. So she actually, this is kind of sick on Jessica's part, mm-hmm. so desperate is she to run when Bruce calls her on the phone that she makes a backup plan and brings Robin with her to babysit just in case she has to leave the babysitting gig early, which she does. Yeah. And she even convinces uh, Collins that he needs to bring his kid over to her place, right? Oh, that's right. Because she's like, well, you know, it's more convenient for you and errands and everything. And he just goes with it because it's... And she does all that so that she'll be there to take Bruce's call. Mm -hmm. So Robin gets the idea that she wants to be in Pi Beta Alpha, the sorority that the Wakefields are in. Which, sorry, pause. I don't understand how we have a sorority and a fraternity in a high school. It's always been a question mark for me. Okay, (laughs) Okay, so there's no, like, super valid answer. I was very confused. It's an important element of this world of Sweet Valley from book one. I don't know why. 
Uh, but it's there. It okay. definitely creates a kind of power structure, a hierarchy that um, adds some drama to the world of the book, as you've seen already in this mm-hmm. one. So Robin wants to be in Pi Beta Alpha, and Jessica comes up with a scheme mm-hmm. um, to get Robin to steal test answers from the chemistry teacher. Bruce has given her this idea, but is unwilling to steal them himself. Jessica's also unwilling to steal the test answers. Mm-hmm. So Robin does it. Right. But then Jessica puts the test answers in Emily's locker, the girl that she's cheating off of. Right. And then forces Emily by confrontation being like, I know you have answers in your locker, so you'd better use them. You know, she just blackmails Emily pretty blatantly. Yeah, and this clearly, it's her plan all along. This mastermind plan. I mean, this is the real Jessica. Uh, But so maybe she's not so hidden after all. It's just when it comes to boys. But she has this mastermind plan. I'm going to, if I I put the test answers in my own locker, Jessica thinks, Mm -hmm. then if somebody finds me with them, I'll be in trouble. If I put them in Emily's locker, the worst case scenario is somebody finds Emily with them and Mm -hmm. I'm not implicated. Yeah. Well, I think that also speaks pretty clearly to Jessica's character because she's trying to remove as much damage from her as yeah. possible. But even going back to chapter one, like I had a note that I was like, it's page seven and I'm, it's really hard not to hate her based on her treatment of Robin. Like right. I just took to Robin right away and really felt for her and watching Jessica treat her so badly and constantly like this poor character and I blame the author for this, mm-hmm. is just constantly referred to as fat or ample or every roly-poly, scene. every scene. Like, you can't – or there's one scene, there's a makeover scene um, where Jessica has a, a thought that she keeps to herself that if only Robin would lose a little weight, she might actually be pretty. And she also, like, refers to Robin in her head as a butterball, which made my skin crawl. Oh, it's awful. It's like it, – it, I mean, in a, in a way, it's probably accurate to mean girls in high school, but, like, not in a way that is good to be in those shoes well, as a reader. And it's this weird thing that makes it seem – these books make it seem like Robin is the only overweight person in the entire school. Right. Like, she's the one outcast because she's the only person who's fat. I hate it. You mentioned Winston earlier, and there's another weird comment about Robin's weight that happens when – Jessica has told Robin that Winston has a crush on her mm-hmm. to kind of get Winston off her back. Elizabeth can see maybe she's trying to get them both off her back by hooking them up. It's not the worst idea in the world, except that even Winston is like, we don't have much in common. Um, I get nervous around people who eat all the time, he says. Yeah, I flagged that and like quoted that. It's on page 66 if you guys are flipping through your books at home. <laughs> and I have so many question marks next to that on my notepad. I'm like, excuse me? Have we seen Robin eating a single thing in this entire book at that point? No! No, she's not eating all the time. She makes like one reference, I think, at the very end about how she's going to go to the buffet when she's talking to Jessica at Bruce's party. But, like, I'm sorry, it's a party. You go to a buffet. There's nothing wrong with that. Later on, it's Bruce Patman who takes Jessica to the Dairy Burger and says, oh, it's always good to have food when you're getting bad news. Like, but he's allowed to say that and eat. But God forbid the fat girl put a single bite of food in her mouth because then she eats all the time and Winston doesn't want to date her because he's such a fucking prize. Right. Sorry, this really triggered me. Well, no, I totally understand. And I just, I got so mad because I was just like, are you 
insane. Because again, the entire theme of this little novella here is don't let a guy change you or don't change for a per- another person. And that's very clear in the Jessica storyline. But I feel like the implication in some of these things that we're raising is that, you know, Robin could get Winston or could get a guy if she just, you know, stopped eating. That's a terrible message to send to people. I agree. Well, as long as we're talking about Jessica and Bruce, let's dive back into that storyline. We talked about the the cheating. Mm -hmm. Uh, In case it wasn't clear, Emily's role in all of this is that Jessica cheats off Emily. Right. So if Jessica says to Emily, hey, I know you've been having trouble on the test too, and I saw you reading those test answers, it doesn't matter that Emily says, Jessica, that means you must have put these in my locker, because Jessica says, I saw you reading them, and I'll tell Russo if you don't use them, basically, mm-hmm. is what she says, because Jessica now is going to cheat off of Emily, knowing that Emily knows all the answers. It's very weird. <laughs> but it's a kind of a genius plan in a messed up twisted mind sort of a way. Yeah, she has a real future as being a supervillain. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well said. So, Jessica and Bruce. So, Jessica's very happy with Bruce. It's all going great. The first clue that there maybe is a taste of something amiss mm-hmm. comes when Jessica goes to play tennis at Bruce's house. Would you agree with me that that's like the first time that Jessica's maybe getting a whiff of something Weird here. That's the first time Jessica becomes aware of it. Everybody else seems already very well aware of the weird factor, but and the fact that Bruce sucks. Yeah, yeah. No, I think everybody's got that memo, uh, but Jessica just takes a little bit longer to figure that out. <laughs> so Jessica loves tennis. Mm-hmm. Bruce is like a star tennis player. She's really excited they have this in common, as she should be. Like, right. that's great. That's a good foundation of a of a relationship with you know the rich bro in town. Like we both. <laughs> We're, you know, he's so preppy, and I'm not that preppy, but I love tennis, so at least we have that. Yeah. Sure. I could see that, like, justification. That works. And damned if Jessica can't hit one serve back to him before he starts getting pissy. Yeah. What? Okay, so the one note that I made on that is it says, page 55, I hope she goes Serena Williams on your ass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you really want her to. She's clearly so good and it is instantaneous. She returns his serve and he's like, what? What does he call her? Chris, Chris Everett? Like, who are you? Who are you over here? Chris Everett? Yeah, or he, you know, like, geez, you don't let up, do you? And at first she thinks that's like a flirtatious statement and then when she keeps succeeding at this or at least keeping up with him then he it escalates pretty quickly he goes from like mildly disgruntled to seriously angry kind of like violent yeah borderline violent like he starts pacing back and forth and he's really you know aggressive it's sad too because she's gone over there with the intent to like show him that two can play tennis Mm -hmm. and she announces this to her family when she tells how them how much they're so in love and later on she goes back home this is like days later and talks about how she's going to watch Bruce play tennis and her dad, her dad says something about like, well, don't you even play doubles together? Like that's a, you know, again, that's a very reasonable assumption. Well, maybe you guys play doubles. Oh, you don't play each other in tennis. Oh, so you mean you only play doubles? And Jess is like, no daddy, I just watch him from the sidelines. I mean, playing would be fun, but he's just so beautiful to watch. She says they were dad. Yeah, <laughs> I I also like maybe maybe this is something that should be wrapped up at the end. But I have I have some theories about that that household in general and like the parent dynamic. Let's talk about it. Yeah, um, 
here, this is like, I'm, this is, sorry to the listeners, this is what I do for a living, is I overread into things, um, and that's just kind of part it of makes what you film the perfect guest. <laughs> you it makes too. you the perfect guest for this particular podcast, oh. where we overthink something fundamentally very silly. Good. I love that. That is probably my life brand, uh, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I love reading these notes back to myself, because it's... It's just strange. I put that the phrase domestic boundaries and I put boundaries in air quotes and it's the scene where they're initially after the dance. Uh, Liz is at the breakfast table. This and, is early on in the book. Yeah, very early on. And uh, and Jessica hasn't come down yet, but uh, Alice Wakefield, who inexplicably gets referred to as just Alice for a little while and then she's Mrs. Wakefield, um, is trying to discuss with her husband this job that she's not sure she's going to get. And he reveals that he got some insight into this by somebody at work named Mariana. Oh yeah. Mariana factors largely into the first book. Okay. Where the twins both thought that Mariana, who is a beautiful divorcee working closely with their father, uh, that Mariana and Ned were having an affair. I also think this is true. I'm serious because the way, okay, so no, hear me out, hear me out. So the way that Alice, aka Mrs. Wakefield, handles this situation is to deflect and be like, oh, maybe I'm reading too much into things. But she she specifically asks what about Mariana in that situation. And I was like, oh, is there trouble in paradise? And then that also made me think maybe this is how Elizabeth and Jess have learned to handle conflict in men. That's fascinating. Two things fascinating. First of all, I love that something that seemed so absurd and unsubstantiated, even though it was heavily tackled in the first <laughs> book, now in subtext is has come to you of your own accord. Like, this must yeah. be true, this affair. Because it seems like they're really jumping to conclusions in book one. But also, um, I love the idea that uh, this is... The their supposedly wonderful, beautiful family, their parents, their sexy parents mm-hmm. are 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 proving to be poor role models yeah. for them in their <laughs> relationships. Also, this never comes back. Mm-hmm. This uh, this weird moment of tension in chapter two of this book yeah. never never is returned to. Well, if you'll if you'll indulge me, please. Okay, um, so going back to this breakfast scene is I'm just going to read this little bit. It says Alice held her breath for a moment. She was unhappy with her husband's lack of interest in her work, but she had no desire to make an issue of it on this bright, clear Sunday morning. And it just seemed to me like that's what I meant by domestic boundaries. It's like, oh, I don't want to ruin this beautiful morning with my family, so I'm going to put myself in the back seat in this situation. And it speaks so strongly to how Jessica handles stuff with Bruce that it just really... It it called a lot of things into question to me. (laughs) I think that's so insightful, Caitlin. And I'm actually going to go out on a limb and say that I think maybe that was the author's intention. What? Because (laughs) why else even include that detail if you're not trying to somehow, like, plant this seed of... Uh, there could be discord by not speaking your mind Mm. about relationship dynamics. Uh, Maybe I'm I'm crazy, but I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I... I, it seemed like a really uh, pointed moment for a story that's really about teenagers. Like, the adults don't factor in very heavily to the storyline whatsoever. No, they don't hardly at all. 
Yeah. Nor does Enid, Elizabeth's friend, who was the main character in the previous book. I guess they just understood. Enid, do you even know who that is? No, I think I think maybe that name got used once in passing, but that means nothing to She's me. She's been a very major character in the past two books. Okay. So Jess and Bruce are going hot and heavy, uh, and Elizabeth is noticing some weird changes in Jessica. One weird thing that happens is Elizabeth goes to borrow a miniskirt from Jessica. Mm-hmm. And Jessica has been shopping at the very she-she, the Boston shop, and she's <laughs> bought some, like, wool suits. This yeah. was something that stood out to me from the first time I read this book way back years ago. I wrote a blog post about it, where it felt to me like Bruce was trying to dress Jessica up like his mother. Ooh. Bruce uh, apparently has told Jessica that he hates new wave clothes. Right, which blew my mind because when, again, to go back to this opening of the book, we get a really cool description of Jessica's outfit as being blue and there's blue tights with her blue skirt. and she It goes seems, with her aquamarine eyes. Exactly, and she seems really sharp and I very sarcastically wrote, yes, into my novel. <laughs> and then for her, the next time we really hear anything about her fashion besides like the infamous bikini top, is to have this moment where she's gone to the Boston shop and she's changing her wardrobe uh, and that dismissing this new wave look of her past and saying, you can keep this skirt forever. I don't need it anymore. Well, and you were talking about a kind of Hitchcockian code of the beach as being code for sex. Yeah. Well, I think that this is another aspect that is a little bit um, like my favorite movie, Vertigo, this element of Bruce sort of subtly trying to change Jessica into another person. Ooh. I'm kind of like, who is this teen man? Like, he's he's the <laughs> cock of the walk. Uh-huh. He's the big man on campus. But also suddenly he, like, doesn't want Jessica to be a cheerleader anymore. Uh, he hates football games. He only loves tennis. He hates new wave clothes. He also has this weird thing where he tells Jessica, like, he doesn't want to go to school functions, mm-hmm. even though he's always at school functions. Yeah. Like, she wants to go to a dance. He doesn't want to go. Right. And he wants to be the center of attention, which is something that the book really carefully emphasizes to us as readers. So it would seem weird and against character that he doesn't want to go to a school function. Right. But also, like, he's always there. This is the first sign of this. But maybe it's because we've never gotten a glimpse into Bruce Patman's head before. We've only seen it from Jessica or Elizabeth's perspectives that Bruce happens to be at these events. But now that we're getting to know him, like Mm -hmm. Jessica is, we're getting to learn that he actually... uh, only wants to go to the beach and try to have sex with his dates. And he, like, maybe he only goes to school functions to, like, pick up chicks to try to take to the beach. I don't know. Well, no, there's a ton of implications throughout this novel that the beach is about sex. Like, even when, uh, I believe they're in the newsroom uh, for the Oracle, and I think it's Kara comes in to talk to Elizabeth. Can we just pause for a moment to point out, both of Jessica's best friends, Kara Walker and Lila Fowler, have dated Bruce Patman and had it end badly. And that hasn't apparently curbed Jessica's appetite for this man. Right. Well, because I think, even though it's not said, I think her logic is probably, well, they weren't right for him and I was. Oh, I think that that is kind of sad. Okay, it is. And you know what? I actually want to just take a step back. And even though things go very badly for Jessica and Bruce and their relationship in this book, when Jessica says at the beginning of the book that she and Bruce Patman are perfect for each other, there's a big part of me that is inclined to agree because they are both manipulative fuckers. Yeah. They want to be the center of attention. They want to be in charge of everybody. Maybe I'm, sounds like I'm not being fair to Jessica. Being fair to Jessica is not really my thing. Um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, they are kind of like they're so alike that that's why playing with fire is not just Jessica getting too close to a strong man. I think playing with fire, I mean, a do- not strong, but domineering Dominant. man, domineering personality. I think the playing with fire is like getting these two like dangerous chemicals, like mixing the two. I don't know. Yeah. The, the analogy doesn't play out, but it's like mixing these two things. I always think about like a dangerous chemical reaction, like these <laughs> two, but it's like they're too close to each other. So again, the metaphor doesn't play out, but I think that they're a very volatile combination because of how similar they are. But no guys, what if Jessica and Bruce are really soulmates? Like, not in the sense of like they're gonna live happily together, but like what if they're just the other half, you know? They just not, can't quit each other. Yeah. No, I mean like not in a romantic way, because I definitely don't wanna romanticize this shit show at all. <laughs> I think that's a very bad idea. But you know how like some people just are never gonna change. They're always gonna be an asshole. They're always gonna be yeah. uh, you know, I feel like that is what connects them in a lot in some ways, like they are so well matched, but it's a disaster and it should be a disaster. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. What ends up happening that starts to uh, crumble the relationship between Jessica and Bruce is not that Jessica is tired of Bruce's constant abuse or constant brushing her off, which he starts to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually dismantled by some scheming from Elizabeth. I love it when the only good thing about jessica having a personality change is that it always forces elizabeth to do some scheming of her own and that's when elizabeth (laughs) really shines and stops seeming like such a wet blanket um so as we know or as listeners will probably remember uh, elizabeth writes the eyes and ears column for the oracle it's a terrible column where she says who has a crush on everybody and everybody knows that she writes it which is also weird it's supposed to be a secret but Mm -hmm. everybody knows And someone slips in a column about Bruce having won the Sun Desert Road Rally in his Porsche, which I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet. There's some crazy cars in this novel. Bruce's black Porsche has Mm -hmm. a license plate on it. One Bruce won. If this isn't the best little piece of character development, like in one word, in one phrase, Mm -hmm. one Bruce won says volumes about this man, right? I mean, this is something that in terms of other kinds of media like TV or movies, this is the kind of move that I've learned comes with douchebaggery. Like if you think <laughs> if you think about like uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, Andrew Keegan in his car yeah. and his convertible, I don't think we ever really get a, a shot of his license plate, but I bet it's his name or like model or something yeah. like that. This is, that's... This he's definitely Bruce definitely fits a type. Uh definitely. And so we know it was his car. Somebody slips something into Elizabeth's article mm-hmm. b- before it goes to press. Uh she later finds out it was John Pfeiffer who did it, and it's something that says he won this he won this rally. Elizabeth is annoyed about it because she doesn't want to be praising Bruce in her column. She only wants to like be bashing him she already left out the fact that the hottest couple in town is bruce and her sister because she doesn't even want to acknowledge it Mm -hmm, um but the thing is that bruce was supposed to be at some sort of family function and um 
that's what he broke a date with Jessica to go to this family function that Jessica begged him actually, please let me go. Like, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to go to one of your father's parties. And Bruce is like, Oh no, honey, you won't like it. It'll be boring, baby. Yeah. This is, uh, we referenced the drive in like, Oh, bad news should always come with, you know, food or something like that. And yeah. this is actually when he tells her that he has to break a date with her and that it's for his, his oppressive father's events and oh no she wouldn't like it then that's the event where um bruce is apparently at this rally and he won this road rally and uh elizabeth asked jessica about it like wasn't he supposed to be at his dad's party and jessica was like he wasn't really there driving it was somebody else driving his car which is such bullshit but whatever (laughs) like does she really believe that i don't know if we're supposed to think she does i don't know like and this is me being maybe Maybe oversharing with people, I don't know. But I've been in abusive relationships before, and I, to me, I felt like I joke about this, but this book was kind of triggering. Like, you get in a situation like that, and you will believe whatever that person tells you. Well, let's take a time out and talk about that for a second, because you were saying how in your book, there was yeah. like a certain a certain flag that you made where you actually wrote that in the book. Like, this is triggering to me. Yeah, let me find it. Okay. Um, it's like on page 31, and he... Whatever for whatever reason we're in Bruce's head and he just uh Jessica suddenly felt insecure and vulnerable and so she cuddle she cuddles close to Bruce and this is right after he's basically threatened her, saying, If you don't do what I like, you're not gonna be with me for very long. He responded by turning his face to hers and kissing her hard, his arms crushing her against him, his mouth demanding what his body wanted to take. Yikes. That talk about explicit for a novel like this. Like that's that's straight up rapey. Yeah. And that's also very much about power dynamics. And it doesn't matter what kind of abuse you're going with undergoing, whether it's sexual, mental, verbal, emotional, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's about power. And that's clearly what's at the heart of this book is how Jessica gives up her own independence and like lets Bruce take control over her life in so many ways. And her reasoning is always the same. It is this, this threat that she feels very confident he's going to make good on. And he gives her every reason to believe that he will make good on it, Mm -hmm. which is if you don't do what I like, I will disappear and we will not be a couple anymore. And so she's afraid of losing him. So she does whatever he wants because she knows that as soon as she slips up, he's going to be gone. Right. And the other implication there, if you read between the lines, is her feeling, even though we get the sense early on in this book that she's a confident female, for better or worse, that the implication of her fear and her believing his lies, her doing whatever he wants, is that she might be nothing without him. Which is such an un-Jessica perspective. It's so weird. Right, which is why it's such a weird zero to 60. And that's what made me kind of feel, like I you know, somewhat jokingly said, triggered. But I mean it because when you get into that headspace and you've put so much of your expectations and self-worth into somebody else like that, they have so much control over you. And, and somebody could really do damage. And clearly Bruce does do damage to her. Well, and this is what gets Elizabeth going because she really hates it when she, even though... Jessica does a lot of shitty things to Elizabeth, her identical twin sister. <laughs> um, Elizabeth hates it when Jessica is not being Jessica. It's a constant theme throughout these books. And so um, Elizabeth wants to do what she can 
within reason to try to break them up. But she also knows, and she's right, that she can't just come out lashing out against Bruce because Jessica will only be mad at Elizabeth and push her away. It's a pretty realistic kind of family dynamic, honestly. No, and honestly, it's a it's an honest and realistic friend dynamic. You know, this, this relationship in the past that I've been alluding to, an example of it is that, you know, I was spending all of my time with this guy. This was my first relationship ever. I was like 19. I was close to their age. And they, you know, I started spending all my time with the new guy in question. And my friends held an intervention for me and were like, hey, you're spending too much time with him. You're changing for him. We don't like how he treats you. We don't like what he says to you. Get out. And I ignored them because I was 19 and stupid and thought that I was in love. And at my age currently, I have better perspective on that situation and know that it wasn't love. It was just the desire to feel wanted. Sure. And that's definitely what's happening with Jessica here. She, it's that thing too, where because Bruce is such a bad boy and because he was hard to get, even though he's only giving her a little bit, she loves that. Like she's the person that he's kind of nice to. She's the one he's chosen. Mm -hmm. And that feels like extra special to her. I can even relate to that. I, I'm not really the type that's in love or that falls for like bad boys, but I've had a couple of guys in my life, especially in high school where it was like, he's a dick to everyone but me. And Oh, I love being the one who gets to uh, be treated specially by him. Right. And there's something about Jessica's character that I've been able to pick up on just in this one book that she kind of in a way she's almost like an avid huntress of of <laughs> of the of the men folk in the high school and so oh, yeah. this is her her greatest challenge it's not just that she's had this crush on this guy forever it's like he's he's the white whale like this is her yes. <laughs> this is her like Moby Dick moment <laughs> like, <laughs> Jessica as Captain Ahab I love it yeah. I love it um so Bruce not only was Bruce, yes, the one driving the car in the road rally, but he also had someone in the car with him, a navigator. And Elizabeth knows instantly. She's like, not only is Bruce lying about where he's going, he's also, that navigator has got to be a chick and she's <laughs> cheating on Jessica. Um, so this kind of all culminates in uh, a birthday party. It's going to be Bruce's 18th birthday. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to go back and check the text. I really thought Bruce was a junior. So maybe he's an 18-year-old junior, like we said before. Possibly dumb. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm just really wanting that to be the case because I don't like him. Yeah, or he was just, like, too cool for kindergarten. And <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so he, until he finally convinced, they finally convinced him to go a year later when he was older we've given him such an epic backstory right now i love it <laughs> so he has told jessica that it's going to be an intimate night just the two of them but he's told everybody else that it's going to be a big party but not to tell jessica because it's a surprise for jessica another way that these two characters are so alike talk about weird masterminding complicated planning what is his end game here? He throws this huge party. Jessica's pissed off because she's wanted to be alone with him finally after mm-hmm. not seeing much of him for a while. She puts on this sexy black dress. But 
then it's this big party, and then she like pretends that she's happy about it. And he deliberately leaves her in a corner and is like, "Okay, baby, I gotta go make the rounds. You understand?" I got the sense that it was like a chair on an empty stage that he like set her on up on the <laughs> stage in front of everybody. So it's like he's literally putting on his uh, his abandonment of her on stage, on stage. And then we have Winston who tries to come in and like save the day because he's still in love with her. And the thing that I flagged about this interaction is that he he leaves Jessica after she's given him very cold shoulder, you know, responses and he tells Elizabeth or he tell no, he says to Jessica as he's parting from her something about like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like intrude on his uh the big man's property. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find exactly what he says because I was like, "Excuse me." Um, oh, that's exactly it. Well, excuse me for going near the Big Shot's property. See you around, Jessica. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he told her. It, yeah. That's basically how she's acting right now, the Big Shot's property. So, which I think is also, sidebar, kind of uh, a big deal because I believe somebody else refers to Jessica as Bruce's slave earlier in the novel. So there's like some heavy duty issues with language here. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to finish off the plot. Bruce is like, let's move this party elsewhere. And Jessica is so for it. And he's like, I'm bringing the party with me. And just for a split second, she thinks he means like, by taking you with me, it's like I'm taking the party with me. Mm-hmm. And the next sentence is like, everybody in their cars followed Bruce to the pizza place. It's literally like the whole party comes with <laughs> them to the pizza place. Which, to, in her defense, is a fair assumption because we've oh, established yeah. early on that the party doesn't start until Jessica walks in, you know? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's very early on in the novel. That's like a known fact. So everyone on Earth is at Guido's Pizza Palace. <laughs> Bruce it must gets, be a very big place. Bruce has to go make a phone call real quick. He comes back and his grandma is sick. <laughs> his grandma's sick. And he's like, Jess, I'll take you home on my way home to see grandma. And Elizabeth is like, no, we'll take her home. You go ahead, Bruce. <laughs> and Elizabeth tells her boyfriend, Todd, to drive them around for half an hour. And Todd makes up a story about... About Jupiter and Saturn, because he's suddenly a very avid astronomer. Yeah. They take Jessica on this weird like route where they go to Miller's Point to look at the stars, and then they have to go... Elizabeth says she forgot her keys, and Jess is like, but Liz, I've got my keys. You could just get them tomorrow. And yeah. Liz is like, no, no, we've got to go back to the pizza place, because Elizabeth is sure that they're going to go back and find Bruce at the pizza place. And do they? Well, she ain't wrong. Bruce is there with a mysterious redhead, the maybe, maybe our navigator from the road rally. Yeah, her name is... Aline, I think. I don't think we get her name in this book. If we get it at all, it's like down the road. Well, so nobody has left the party. This was such a ballsy move on Bruce's part because Jessica was going to find out the next friggin' day. If everybody was still at the party and, and Bruce is there with his redhead, people would tell Jessica. Unless he's like, this is a secret surprise too. Like, really? <laughs> this, this is like a surprise friend for Jessica. Don't tell her. I, she, I want her to be surprised. This is Jessica's new sister wife and you can't tell her. <laughs> So Jessica sees it and instantly it's like the way the book describes it is the fog lifts Mm. and she's not even sad. She's mad and she pours a pitcher of Coke over his head. Mm -hmm. She throws a pizza in his face. Right. And then tries to throw another pitcher of Coke at him and he backs up and falls into a fountain. Which again, 
let's just think for a minute how amazing this pizza parlor must be that there's a water feature and it holds an entire party of teenagers. (laughs) But ultimately, the bigger question here is Jessica has clearly been established as almost a Regina George-like figure if we compare to Mean Girls. Like, at Mm -hmm. what point did you think, Bruce, that it was going to be a good idea to screw around on Regina George? (laughs) So true. Like... How did you not think this was going to end in disaster? She's not, she doesn't have a reputation for being meek and mild or just like, oh, that's okay. I'm going to go cry in a corner right now. No, fire and brimstone is what you shall get. Or in this case, pitcher and pizza. (laughs) In the end, um, Emily confesses to Mr. Russo about the cheating and Jessica fails her chemistry test, but she is free of Bruce. So it's a happy ending. And Robin Wilson is convinced that she is going to get nominated for Pi Beta Alpha. Mm -hmm. And she tells Elizabeth this, like, oh, Jessica said she would. And Elizabeth's like, it's in her head thinking, that doesn't sound like Jessica. Are you sure? Yeah. Um, But so that's where that's left. We know, we know, the reader knows that Jessica doesn't think a butterball like Robin Wilson would have a chance at being in Pi Beta Alpha. Uh, So now, Caitlin, is the point in our podcast where we talk about boys. Ooh. Oh, 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 who's a beautiful boy? Who's a beautiful boy? I'm in danger of losing my head to a beautiful boy. a beautiful boy. Now, we've actually been talking about boys a lot because there uh, are boys. Bruce Patman is a boy that looms large. (laughs) But there's another man that we haven't talked about yet that I want to talk about. Great. Um, and this is a man that is referred to in the first chapter as the mysterious man in the red leather pants. I think it's very important that they're red leather pants. Oh, like, yeah. Not just, I mean, obviously that's the detail that's emphasized, but I immediately go to a thriller place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think, 1984, but um, Mysterious Man in the Red Leather Pants is such a cool description for a dude. Then this dude sucks. He's an adult man (laughs) who has a crush on Dana, the lead singer of the droids, Mm -hmm. and has been fired from a record company. So, spoiler alert on the B-plot here, which we didn't talk too much about. But this whole thing with the droids getting a gig in LA that like totally practically breaks the band up Mm -hmm. is all just this creepy adult man trying to get with Dana, a high school rock band singer. Yeah. And he's supposedly in his 20s. That's like the only sense we get of his age is that he's a he's, he's a, a handsome old, man in his 20s. He's old enough to have had and lost a job at like JB Goods Record Company or whatever it's called. No, I, th- I think that's right. <laughs> really? I, the good part is, I don't know about the initials, but the good is, yeah. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about Winston's crush on Jessica. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, so that's a boy situation. Right. Um, and, and Guy, the bandmate, right? He Guy has, has he, a crush on Dana too. Yeah. Which is part of what is causing so much tension in this B storyline is that Emily's wise to the fact that Guy might have a thing for their lead singer, Dana? Yeah. Dana, Dana is her name, yeah. And, um, and she's unwilling to say something to him to cause more conflict but she's like this is why a guy's being an asshole (laughs) if these names aren't ringing any bells to listeners you're not really missing anything these are characters that are always sort of hovering in the sidelines 
of the world of Sweet Valley, Emily, Guy, Dana, and Max, I think. Max Dellen. He plays guitar. Guy or Max? Uh, Max. Guy plays piano. Right, right, right. See, okay, we got it. Emily plays drums. Dana's the lead singer. Mm -hmm. Max plays guitar. And Guy plays piano. Yes. Which I immediately, for whatever reason, think of Guy as being, like, having a flock of seagulls haircut. I don't know if that's fair to him, but that's what I picture. I think it's very fair. And I love it. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the part of the episode where I ask my guests a very important question in the world of Sweet Valley. Are you an Elizabeth or a Jessica? Oh. Search yourself. Oh, this, I'm, ah. Oh, wow. This is like some deep investigation here. I didn't realize this was going to be such a struggle for you, and I love it. I, because I, I think, like, the easy answer is that I'm an Elizabeth. Like, if you ask me the sex and the study question, I'm a Charlotte for sure, and I feel like then Elizabeth mm-hmm. is a close. Oh, yeah. Close approximation. Elizabeth is totally a Charlotte, or Charlotte is an Elizabeth. Yeah, either way. Um, But I guess there's, like, a little corner of my heart that feels for Jessica, so I think any hesitation is, like, really lingering sympathy well, and if you look back at your teen years as you were doing, I'm sure mm-hmm. that in your past, you, you it sounds like you saw some kinship, like past you might have been more of a Jessica. Maybe. Yeah. Not, not in like the popular aggressive bitch way, but like, <laughs> will because I was none of those things as a teenager <laughs> or now, I hope. Uh, but I certainly bent over backwards sometimes to my detriment in this name of love that wasn't really love. Well, I will say that I don't think Jessica ever would have come to a podcast recording with as many notes as you did. Yeah. No, I think um, I think I am actually an Elizabeth, but at the same time, like, oh, man. Jessica's have more fun. Yeah, Jessica's have more fun. But I also think the actual answer might be that I'm an Emily. Excellent. Well, yeah. Sayla said she was an Enid in episode one. Great. So, so we're just populating mm-hmm. this world with ourselves. That's great. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm a textbook Elizabeth, so... I buy that, actually. Yeah. No, I feel like, you know, rules are very important to both of us. We've discussed this many times in our friendship, and, like, the way, you know, proper proper handling of people's emotions are very important. Yes. Um, I think I'm a person that people come to when they have a problem, and even if it's not my business to solve it, I might try. Oh, that's really good, because I actually flagged a note in this book about, and I just have this weird note that says women's emotional labor and it's in reference to Elizabeth and like how this book kind of capitalizes on women's emotional labor and doesn't really recognize it, which I feel like knowing you as I do speaks to that capacity that people just like (laughs) tell you things that maybe they shouldn't be telling you because they know that you're going to give them advice. (laughs) This is the best answer to are you an Elizabeth or an Jessica yet? Great. I like that. I, li- I like to set standards, which again is very Elizabeth of me. <laughs> but I, I maybe also, also said, Jessica. <laughs> I also said uh, Jessica just now, so that's we'll blame that on my cold. Well, we can also blame it on the twin factor. You know, I'm sure that's got to be a plot point at some at some juncture, right? The confu- the twin confusion. Oh, really? From the get go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Caitlin, it's been such a pleasure having you and talking about this book with you. I sh- would love to have you back again to uh, 
unpack a future volume because it only gets crazier from here. No. <laughs> Is that a no? You're not going to come back on the no, show? No, that, that's a no. It gets weirder. It gets crazier. Like, now I have oh, to know. Oh, man. Oh, man. Didn't you say that you had gotten one of the books from the library? Yeah. So just for listeners out there to have a little context on my thoughts on this novel, uh, Marissa gave me a copy of playing with fire and I wanted to come at it with absolutely no context whatsoever so I just read this on its lonesome and then uh, the LA Public Library has a great service where you can uh, get e-readers of things and so I have checked out the copy of the first I don't know I don't remember what the it's title called is. Double Love Double Love okay ah tennis reference again <laughs> uh, good point and, uh, and so I will be catching up, hopefully, with this podcast. All right. So listeners, take that to heart. If you're looking to catch up on these books and you can't find them anywhere, check and see if your library has an e-version of the books. It's uh, suitable for Kindles and such. Um, well, again, I want to thank you so much, Caitlin, for being with us today. And uh, if you could just uh, let us know what's going to happen in book four. Ooh, happily. All right. So here we go. Can Liz outwit her scheming twin and make Robin a pie beta? Find out in Sweet Valley High number four, Power Play. Ooh. Scintillating. I'd also like to thank Don Flaxbart, Mary-Kate Battles, Lauren Shippen, and Jocelyn Schofield for the use of her song, Beautiful Boys. Hit me up on Twitter at Sweet Valley, Instagram at Sweet Valley Diaries, or shoot me an email, sweetvalleydiaries at me.com. There's also, like, color-coded highlights. <laughs> I took my assignment very seriously. <laughs>